This is a new podcast that we've decided to call Good Day, Sir. I'm Jeremy Ross, and with me is John DeSantiago. Yep. Hello. Yeah. So we, you know, John and I have known each other for a long time. We uh, we have conversations a lot about technology and a lot of Salesforce.com uh, type stuff since we both worked with Salesforce for almost 10 years. And uh, it's one of those things where we have these conversations and often we think, you know, it would have been cool if we recorded that because someone like t- maybe one or two people in the world would have thought that was interesting. Uh, so that's what we're doing. We're recording this and hopefully someone finds it interesting. Um, if they do, maybe we'll do more. If they don't, we probably won't. Or maybe we will because we don't care. Um, <laughs> one of the things we wanted to start talking about here is uh, this. Uh, there was an article written the other day on TechCrunch. Um, was basically claiming that you know Force.com is the preeminent you know or next generation enterprise platform. Right. And, but I think the so we actually have two articles we're talking about. We're talking about the TechCrunch and the Forbes article. And like you said, the TechCrunch article is really just another blog post. It was just content to throw up there, light on content, really generalized, talked about Salesforce as a platform. I think the Forbes article kind of dug in deeper about Salesforce as a platform, Salesforce as a, more specifically as a development platform. Um, and I think there's some things that we can debate there in terms of how well Salesforce fits that developer platform model. Yeah, exactly. And you know me, I'm, I'm a, I'm a critic of Salesforce, but it's cause it's cause I have, you know, I love Salesforce in a way. I mean, I have, uh, again, I've worked for Salesforce for a long time. I've, you know, it's been a big part of my career for many years now and it delivers a lot of value. There's a lot of companies that are getting really good value out of it and they've, they've built their whole business around Salesforce. And, uh, so it's great from that perspective, <clears throat> but I'm, but mm-hmm. I'm a big critic because I think there's a lot they can improve on. And if there's not any valid criticism, if there's too much just echo chamber cheerleading, then uh, things don't get better. And so that's why I'm a critic. But uh, that being said, I thought we'd start off with like, you know, why is Salesforce the next enterprise platform? Yeah, and I think more specifically, what are they getting right that makes them a good platform? And then, you know, what can they improve that, that kind of keeps them from getting to that next level, at least from a from our perspective as developers? Yeah, because, you know, they've clearly got like the media on their side. And they've got the whole just uh, cacophony of, you know, the MVPs and all the Salesforce administrators that this is their career. This is how they're, um, you know, you know, the administrators and, the, and these developers in the Salesforce world that, that this is what they're doing now. This is their, well, I think this is what they, think, this is what they know is more importantly. This is what they know. This is whether it's a, for a CRM system or, or from a software development perspective, this is what they know. And, so they're very vocal and they're very excited about it and they're very supportive of it. And that's great. Yeah. And I think to that point, you know, we've, we've known for a long time Salesforce is a, is, I don't want to say primarily, but is a big marketing company. They know and have done really well at controlling the conversation around their platform. Um, if you've gone to the Dreamforce conferences, you, you, you can definitely see that on full, full display. They're very good at, creating a very strong message about their platform, what it is, all the things you can do, all the things you can actually build, um, whether it's reality or not. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's what Salesforce is great at. And I think that's arguably what, what Mark Pinoff is best at, you know, their CEO is creating a vision, communicating the vision, selling the vision. 
Um, whether it's reality or not is a completely different story sometimes. Um, and that's, that's what we're talking about. This force.com as an enterprise platform, is that a reality? What, what part of that is real today? What part of that is just a vision for the future? You know, I think first and foremost, Salesforce is a CRM system. That's their bread and butter. It still is their bread and butter. I think that's obviously what their, where their roots are. That's where they started. But I still think, I still think that's 95% of the time, how the deal is getting sold. Right. It's the CMO. I think there's, there's a, there's a really a lot of good examples in the past of things that were similar to Salesforce in terms of just being a open-ended platform database that you can customize, that you had an API attached to it, that you can build things on. Uh, but, but they didn't survive. They didn't make it. And I think, I think one of the reasons Salesforce has been able to, to grow where others haven't is because of the CRM portion of their application. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, Again, that that was their that was their nascence, right? That's how they started. That that's their you know raison d'etre or detra. Is that what it is? <laughs> I have no raison idea. d'etre. No. No, that's 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 my French for you. <laughs> is it French? I thought um, you were trying to do Latin. Raison d'etre. That's probably French. Anyway, uh, yeah. I mean, that's you know, again, that that's still their bread and butter. I still think that again, like I said, ninety percent of Salesforce deals that are happening. It, it's, it's for CRM, all the other stuff, all the other parts of it are serendipitous. I mean, the fact that, Oh, you know, so we've, we've got sales and marketing on and now, you know, now customer, even, even the customer support part, I think is more often than not an add on. And us, it's the, once you get the sales and marketing foot in the door, then you go after support, right? They're running remedy or one of these other systems, who knows what, or some homegrown thing. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know anyone that's, that's bought Salesforce just for support without using it as a CRM. Um, it have actually, it does happen. I've seen it a few times, but it, it's not, it's not near as prevalent, you know? Um, it's gotta be a temporary though. I mean, I, I think one of the, the great things that Salesforce has done, if we're going to talk about pros here is that. Once you own that customer master, once you have that information on the customer, it's very easy to kind of tack on all these other things that your businesses need to interact with those same customers. Um, any kind of system that you've either homegrown or bought with someone else um, that interacts with that data, it just seems much more efficient, much more cleaner for your users to go to one place to get that information, maintain that information versus having all these other systems tacked on to Salesforce. It just seems seems like it's better to kind of keep it into that system. So what else about what they do good? Um, why is it the platform? So, you know, in addition to the CRM aspect, you've got, okay, so now we've got CRM, right? We're doing CRM in the company with Salesforce. And, mm-hmm. you know, again, like we were saying, your next thing is support. That's, that's the kind of natural progression of after CRM. But then you've got all sorts of other things. I mean, it could be you know, warehouse related or, some kind of another department that just needs some kind of process automated. They need some kind of form, you know, online form built for it. Right. And that's the next thing, you know, you've, you've got visual force, you throw up a visual force page. Again, this is, this is like the, it's the Microsoft access of 2013. Um, this is, again, this is where all the VB developer, this is the modern day VB slash Microsoft access system. It's Salesforce. And so when you need that type of automation, these just basically for, you know, t- text boxes and buttons, Again, I'm I'm simplifying, but that's basically what we're talking about. Right. Um, a very data record centric system. <clears throat> Salesforce is great at that. Um, you know, it's got the database out of the box. It's highly scalable. It's secure. You've got basic transactions. There's even, 
You know, Visual Force gives you some UI out of the box. You don't have to even do much customizing if you don't want to, if, you, if you're okay with the standard Salesforce UI. So there's so much to get out of the box. And if you were to build that yourself, which you probably even, you probably could not. I mean, how do you achieve Salesforce's uptime and security and their platform and their record and everything else yourself? You, you, you don't. I mean, right. even, even if you were to do something like Amazon or another platform as a service, I mean, what are the other, I mean, so Amazon's like more of an infrastructure as a service. I mean, what are the other platform as a service providers? I mean, this, although I got, I got to interject a, a con here in that that Forbes article, when I read it, one of the things that kind of stuck with me that it said was it talked about, obviously their, their continued uptime and their trust site. Um, and their words were that it was a real time status that you can basically go in and see the real time status of the system. And, and you and I both know that's BS. Um, I've had the system go down for 30 minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, gone to the trust site and there's nothing there. So all these small little allergies that, that do occur and do happen. Um, they're obviously not posted. I think it depends on how many people are affected, how long things are affected, but it's certainly not a real time status. It's, I wish it was. I wish we had a better idea of, of what's going on with the system overall in general. Um, cause it just, it causes us to spin our wheels when we're trying to support this. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that goes back to, you know, and again, Benioff is this, is the visionary and, and Salesforce from the beginning. I mean, again, their strong suit is marketing. They're selling the sizzle. They're not selling right. the steak. Right. And Mark Benioff is great at that. This is why this is one of the, yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the controlling the, the conversation. Um, even the known issues, the known issues list is the same same thing. It's not a real time. Here's all the known issues known. It's the ones they pick and choose that they want to put out there. It, it's a joke. It's it's right. It's a very curated list of things that they're willing to show and talk about. It's the tip of the iceberg. Benioff is great at his job, though, right? I mean he he he's got the vision. He always talks about the vision. He's good at that at Dreamforce, and people eat it up. They love it. Not only the customers and prospects. But the media, the media is so on board. I mean, I, I would like you to show me the, the in-depth critical analysis of Salesforce articles. Okay. Cue Jeopardy music, right? I mean, they, they, they don't, <laughs> there's just, they're few and far between. So Salesforce is again, back to, back to why this is a platform there. They provided this platform that we can not only do all of our CRM in, but we can do our support and all these ancillary processes and we can expose them using, you know, sites, right? All of this visual force stuff. We can expose it as sites to our customers and with portals and communities, they can all have logins and it's all secure. And we've got, you know, OAuth and SAML and it's just, you know, it's, it's a, they've got this stack, right? This out of the box stack that you can get for, you know, it's, it's, not inexpensive, but it's pretty reasonable. And if you were to rebuild it yourself, number one, there'd be a ton of uncertainty. I mean, do you have the right resources, the right people, the right talent, the right skills and house to do this? And that's a big risk, right? Why would you do that? It Salesforce is a known quantity. They've got that. So build on it. It's, it's solid, right? Yeah. And I, I think considering the economic climate, I mean, outsourcing this, this type of work and getting rid of some of those high paid internal um, people to maintain databases, um, developers to maintain the software, uh, it's definitely attractive to kind of outsource that to a company like Salesforce who has a proven record. It's a very popular application. It's not like, I, I think I've heard it said before, no one's been fired for, for implementing Salesforce before. I mean, it, it's just, it's just a really safe bet for anyone who's in IT or CIO level, um, who needs to pick a platform. Yeah. Well, that goes back to the, like, you know, the mid 
late eighties, mid nineties, like no one ever got fired for buying IBM. Right. And then it was Dell right. and then it was, you know, now it's Salesforce. No one, no one got fired for buying Salesforce. <clears throat> and so that's where they are. I mean, they are the incumbent leader at this point. And, and for good reason, I think they're delivering solid value. I think there's definitely solid value there. I, it, some of my concerns are, are around some of the messaging. I mean, it, they do control the conversation. They do control the message. If you go to Dreamforce, you're in awe about everything that you're told it can do and everything. And I, there are times where I'm caught up in it. And there are other times where I hear a new announcement and I'm going, okay, but what's the real limit? What am I really going to have to deal with? Because what happens is they sell it. Customers have bought on. They want this. They want to do this. They want to do everything that they're, that they were promised to be able to do. And a lot of times we, we come into it and we have to work around some limitation. We have to um, get creative and build around this. To some extent, that's some of the perks of the job of being able to overcome those challenges. In other cases, it's kind of frustrating because we're having to go back to those customers and say, yeah, the reality is that you really can't do it exactly like this. We have to kind of do some kind of work around. Even, even their, their mantra of no software doesn't really hold up. No, I mean, it, no, it doesn't hold up. I mean, Salesforce is software. In fact, the distinction between whether software is delivered via your browser or some thing running, I mean, where the process is running is almost immaterial. It's well, it, in, in as much as it's transparent to the user, I mean, the users don't really care. They just want it to work and want it to be there. Right. So it's still software. So the whole no software thing, in fact, has not, well, for you, for you and I, software is software, but for, for most, most people out there that are kind of in this world or in the business world, trying to, trying to figure out what they need for their business. Software to them is something you install on your desktop. I don't know. I mean, I was traditionally, I, I, would, I, I no, think I, it's an, yeah, traditionally, it's, it's sure. an old message. It's but, a, I think it's an old message. I think it's a message that will eventually need to be rebranded as we, as everyone is much more experienced with software in terms of how they get that software on their devices, mobile devices, the web on their, on their desktop with the app stores that are out now. Yeah, so that's a, I mean that's a great example. Mobile. I mean, whether it's mobile or through my browser on my desktop or whatever, it doesn't matter. It's 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 all software. You know, ten years ago, if it was through the browser, it was a website. But nowadays, it it doesn't. I mean, almost almost everything is through the browser. If you're talking about on your desktop, right? Almost everything is through the browser, unless you're running Photoshop. So I think it's again. I think the distinction is is really minimized at this point. Um, it is software, and so the, I, I think I think you'll see the note. But are I, we really I, just split, splitting hairs with that argument? Well, no, I mean, no. But but ten years ago, it was a huge distinction, which is why I think that worked great for them. I think it was a great message, the no software. Um, but yeah, now it's almost silly, and, and it's silly to the point that you know you've got um, at Dreamforce. Was it last year or the year before? I think I think it was the HP CEO or, or um, uh, some some big software company. Uh, maybe it was an HP, but the CEOs on uh, at Dreamforce talking, giving a talk. You know, Benioff brings them on. It's the, it's this. You know, they they run Salesforce and you know mutual CEO backslapping and favor and whatever. And so you've got the CEO of a major software firm speaking at Dreamforce, standing on a massive stage. That when you look at the 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 top down shot, he's standing on a massive, you know, like a one hundred foot by one hundred one hundred foot no software logo. <laughs> this is the CEO <laughs> of a software company. Uh, I don't remember which one it was, but well, that that that's no worse than the Dell presentation where they were trying to sell you servers to create your own cloud. But at the time, the presentation really didn't was right after kind of Benioff doing his whole no software. You don't need to buy software. You need to do this. You just put it on our platform, and then they came on and tried to sell us hardware to build our own clouds. Yeah, so the, I mean, there's again, this is I think um, as 
oh gosh, S paradigm shift. Uh, excuse me for using that that term, but you, you know, you 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 see these. Uh, I don't know if they're really ironies or just there's there's the awkward there's the awkward points in when 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 we shift from one you know way of doing things to another. Um, there's there's the in between points, and you always see that. So let's let's talk about as far as force.com as your enterprise platform to run your applications and develop applications, what are the challenges right now with force.com? Right. Because that's, I mean, that's where the meat is. That's, that's, that's where the interesting conversation is that the reality, you know, behind the, the talking points. Yeah. And I think, I think probably the, the biggest one is the proprietary apex language. And we could probably go on and on at that, but I think, I think what really kind of, ties our hands are the limits. There there are times where I've looked at someone's code and go, I'm glad the limits are there because this guy wrote some horrible code. And so at times it makes sense for those limits to exist. But there are other times where we're trying to accomplish some of these things that they've sold to their customers. You know, build it in the cloud, dream it and build it, anything. You know, they have they have all these Dreamforce presentations with guys sitting in the cloud, having a good old time on cloud nine, you know, with with whatever application they can dream up. But the reality of actually implementing it is far more complex given the limits that we have to deal with. Yeah, there's like 50 pages of fine print behind that. You know, you dream it, you build it, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, as far, yeah, Apex is a, is a proprietary language. I mean, the, so this is a bigger, a, is a broader issue here. The whole platform is proprietary. The Apex programming language, the Visual Force, you know, UI language. Uh, what else? I mean, the, the, their data, the database itself, I mean, the way you build out you know, your objects or tables or whatever. I mean, the, the whole thing is proprietary. You're, you know, the, the fields and, and formulas, the formula fields, and just, I mean, almost every aspect of it, you are building in a completely proprietary system with proprietary notions and, a, and proprietary languages and markup languages to the point that, you know, if you ever decided that, um, let's say Salesforce raised their prices or they kicked you out or for whatever reason, you, you know, you you, it, it does not make business sense for you to continue to have this relationship with Salesforce. There's nowhere you can go. Your investment is a completely sunk cost that you're going to completely lose if, if for whatever reason, for whatever business reason, you can't stay with Salesforce. You're totally hosed. There, you know, there's no portability. There's no vendor neutrality. Yeah, but I've always had a love-hate relationship when it comes to vendor neutrality. I mean, is our code ever really that portable? And if we took the time to make it that portable, it's just really bloated and overexpensive code. I mean, so you, is that a rhetorical question or do you, would you like me to answer it? <laughs> but, I'll let because you I, answer because it. I think, if you, I think if you do it right, in a lot of areas, you can write completely portable code. I mean, I'm... I'm building an application right now that we can take and, you know, we're currently running it on a combination of, of CloudBees and uh, AWS, Amazon Web Services. And there's other, there's other systems we could go to. I mean, there's, you've got OpenStack and all these other initiatives. I mean, there is a lot of portability going on. Yeah, but with each one of those, each one of those platforms, there are some nuances to, to working with it, to living within the limits of their system that... There are some. You're right. Well, well, you can make certain functions and certain, you know, proprietary functions portable, which is true. There are certain other aspects that are going to force you to rewrite portions of the application anyways. Now, I'm not saying that there's no reuse and it's not better to have vendor neutrality. It's just that the idea that you're just going to be able to take this application, unplug it from Salesforce and plug it into Amazon, I think is just a pipe dream. Yeah. No, 
I think you raise a good point, which is there's no such thing as a complete um, transparency as far as your platform is concerned. But with Salesforce, you're 100% bought into the system and you're 100% stuck and at the mercy of Salesforce. You know, when I'm, when I'm building a, you know, a Java or Ruby app for, and I, and if I know what I'm doing, if I know what I'm doing and know how to build it, I'm easily 80% portable. I mean, 80% of my investment, what I've done will port directly to any other platform. And, and, and I'm actually being very generous. I think it's much higher than that because I can tell you, we've already, this application I've been working on, we've, we've moved it across different vendors. In fact, we run it across two different, two different vendors right now. And there is very minimal difference between the two in terms of the, the code and the things that we're having to do. So it's, it's possible. You, you have to know what you're doing because there's ways you can lock yourself in if you don't know where all those corners and edge cases are that you can get yourself stuck into, into proprietary little aspects. But, you know, suffice it to say this, whatever you're doing in Salesforce is it, it ain't going anywhere. Right. It's, right. You, know, <laughs> you, you buy in and you, you have completely bought in. There is no going anywhere. You better hope that your relationship with Salesforce stays, stays healthy. Right. No, absolutely. I agree. I, as far as the Apex language, I mean, so let's all agree it's it's a proprietary system, and, and everyone agrees to that, right? I mean, when you decide to go with Salesforce, you know it's proprietary, and for whatever reason, you've you either don't care, or you haven't thought about it, or you don't understand it, or you've made a a, a well reasoned business decision to go with Salesforce because it makes it, the trade off makes sense, and and it right. it may very well make sense for a lot of for a lot of custom for a lot of companies. And for those companies that have made that calculated choice, I, I applaud them 100%. The, the ones that haven't taken the time to really understand that or have bought into the hype and haven't done the extra work to really evaluate what they're getting into, those I, I kind of feel – I'm not going to say I feel sorry for them, but, but I, I feel like they're somewhat uninformed and they're kind of bought into the hype and they're, they're in a platform that they don't really understand. Um, yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, I, I would say that most of the Salesforce customers I work with don't realize what they've gotten into. Again, the, the message is great. The marketing is great. Um, the vision is great. And, and again, I'm not taking anything away from the value that they're delivering, but there's a lot of sharp edges there. And if you don't know what you're doing, you'll get cut. And I think some of our frustration comes from having to do that reality check with customers that have bought in um, have come to us for solutions and we've had to kind of set them straight in reality. Uh, the reality of, of storage costs, um, the reality that they're not, that they can maybe go down to fries or some other place and buy a couple of terabytes for a few hundred bucks. But when they go to Salesforce, they have to spend, you know, a couple thousand. Yeah. And some of that, I don't, I don't think it's necessarily fair. I mean, with Salesforce, you know, again, you're getting the security, you're getting the redundancy, the reliability, you know, your fries piece of junk, uh, you know, gray market hard drive is, you know, may crash. And what are you going to do then? Right. I mean, that could just, that could literally destroy your business. <clears throat> yeah. Um, so, you know, yeah, there's, there's a lot more to it. But I, th I think that speaks to, to Salesforce as a marketing company. Obviously they want to put their company in the best light and their platform in the best light. Does it do anyone a service for them to kind of do a little more reality checking with their customers or, is everything okay with them just kind of saying, Hey, you can build anything, do anything. Don't worry about what it costs. I've, I've got, I made a list. I've got a few things to get through as far as like what maybe, <laughs> maybe what some of those sharp edges are, what you should watch out for. So you brought up apex. So I'll, I'll just mention a couple of things. And again, I've, 
these are just a few things I cherry picked really. So, okay. So as far as the apex language, it, so apex is loosely based on Java, kind of looks like Java, but it's, it's not really. And you know, whether or not it compiles down to, cause you know, we all know Salesforce internally, they're, they're kind of a JVM based system, right? I, so I assume at some point that apex compiles down to Java bytecode. Right. But I don't really know. And, and, and it's really beside the point, but I, I think, well, I think I, we've got, I mean, to that point, I think we've got some error messages that kind of expose some of the underlyings. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, def, you know, you see some abstractions leaking through, I, you know, you'll even see well, even, even some of their, and well, that could just be coincidence, but even some of their documentation says it works just like this Java function. Yep. Or, or you'll see, um, you know, Oracle store procedure exceptions r- roll up through a stack trace or something, you know, right. it, it happens. Um, but my point is, uh, I think I think Apex should. I mean, if we're go- if this is going to if Salesforce is going to be the enterprise platform, I think the Apex language should be at least on par with Java. You know, Java's been around for a long time, and, it, and to the point actually nowadays it's considered an old and in some in a lot of people's opinions not not even a competitive language. Um, but that being said, shouldn't Apex at least be on par with Java? Um, and the reality is, it's not even it's really not even close. Um, Apex is when they first designed it, the vision for it was to be a database triggering language that kind of looked like Java, but really the goal was for it to be a database triggering language. And so that's how they started. And everything since then has been somewhat of an add-on, but Salesforce is cursed by their, by this, by in, in, in one way their success, but it's really this, they have to maintain backwards compatibility. So, you know, the code that customers wrote five years ago they don't want to have to keep writing it every time a new version of Apex comes out. If so, they so w- when they release new versions of Apex or, or they try to evolve the language, they've got to evolve the language in ways that doesn't break existing code, which really puts them in a box. But it's a well-treaded box. I mean, operating systems have been dealing with that for a long time. Microsoft, Apple, I'm sure Linux. I, I don't spend too much time with Linux, but I'm sure they have similar problems with with trying to maintain backwards compatibility because Upgrading to the latest version is definitely advantageous to everyone in terms of security and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, let me let me give you a counterpoint example though. Java, C sharp, Visual Basic, Ruby, Python, C, C almost all the languages that I can think of started from day one with some kind of ability to, some kind of modularity in place. Some kind of way to put code units in modules that provided some unit of release and some scoping aspect. Apex, day one, did not have that. And Apex, on October 11th, 2013, and what are we, in version 29 of the platform, does not have it. And while they would, I think they would like to add it, I've certainly talked to people at Salesforce who would like to add what Java calls packages, what .NET calls namespaces. In, in general, there's just this notion of, you know, the code modules. While they while many of them would like to add it, and I think a lot of customers have asked for it as well, um, it is it is such a fundamental uh change to the to the platform that it's hard for them to even imagine how they would go about doing it. Okay, this is a huge problem. Um this is a huge problem for any I would say medium to larger size company, and particularly ISVs that have decided to build their product on the Salesforce platform and that have got anywhere from hundreds to thousands of classes in their application, this creates a huge problem. There's basically, 
There are so many engineering practices and the ways you would normally build an application in a way that's scalable and modular and comprehensible that you can't do on Apex. And so this is one of my kind of, this is one at the top of my list of reasons why force.com is not an enterprise platform. Yeah. I think to add to that, if I was to come up with a list, I mean, the list is, is pretty much the modularity refactoring is a pain. Uh, It's actually non-existent. Yeah. So let's, Uh, I mean, let's just talk about refactoring for a second, because I think that's great. I think that's a great example. You know, you start building a Salesforce application, you've got some custom objects and some custom fields and some classes and things. And someone says, Oh, we need to rename that field. Right. Um, Good luck. Yeah, exactly. And, and you better hope you, you better hope you've never released this application before because once, as soon as you release it, it, the concrete is really set. Yeah. Well, yeah, we're actually talking about two different worlds. Though. We're talking about the ISV world, which, you know, you have a package and you need to deploy that to existing customers. And we're also just talking about the the pain points that, you know, customers who have it and have, have built custom applications on the platform, they're not really dealing with packages. But the underlying issue is that if you've coded against a, a specific field, you can't change it or modify it until you've gotten rid of all those references. And that means either commenting or deleting all your code, making the change and then putting it all back in. Yeah, it's almost, it, yes, you're right. It's, you basically have to like serialize the entire system or just create a new field completely. Yeah, you're right. But if, but the, the former way would be, yeah, you, you serialize the entire system out, dump it, dump the entire system out, the database schemas, the, um, the code, the, the UIs, everything. And you make all these offline changes and then you, well, I mean, to be, to be fair, you don't have to actually touch the UI. It's just any code that's touching it. It should, it should cascade all their references and the workflow and all that kind of stuff. It's just, once you start attaching some reference to it in code, either a query or something like that, that's where you get into trouble. Yeah. Well, and that's because Apex is a very, very static language, you know, just, just like Java, really. Uh, everything's all the data types are static. Um, it's, you know, it, it compiles down to essentially static bytecode. So, you know, so all the references are very, very hardwired, which is fine, right? I, I, you know, I do, I work a lot with Java and other static and other static systems. Um, it's fine. Uh, as long as your tooling supports the ability to refactor and do, and even simple, same things as simple as renaming something with Salesforce, you're basically, you're, you're stuck. Again, the concrete has set. You know, good luck renaming anything. And and again, on, on really large systems, it becomes almost, it, come, it becomes very unworkable. So, so that's, that's one thing. Yeah. I think it's probably important to kind of address that it, it almost seems like something petty that, oh, we have to do some extra work to kind of rename something. But when you're talking, when you get into the realm of thousands of lines of code, hundreds of classes, and you have to change something, it really impacts productivity and hence it impacts the cost to develop something. Because I have to do all that extra work, it's going to take me an hour versus a second to rename something. It's going to take me an hour to go through it and hope that I touched everything that I needed to so that I can, you know, rename a class or make it fit better the requirement, um, either that was changed entirely by the customer or we just just found that we had a bad design. The cost of refactoring actually impacts the bottom line for companies that are trying to develop custom applications on the platform. It's huge. I mean, I've worked with enough ISVs to know that. And again, you know, most companies, a lot of the ISVs I've worked with, and they try to, they have a kind of an agile 
software development process and agile philosophy. That, that's another the irony, actually, is that Salesforce in, in this aspect is very unagile. I mean, you better have a solid, big upfront design. I mean, the BUFD, right? The waterfall. Oh, yeah. You better have it all planned out ahead of time before you start creating objects, fields, naming classes, or anything. And then that relies on perfection, and that's just not realistic when no. we're talking about software development. Right. It's a total pipe dream, right? Um, so another thing is the some of the tooling, right? So that you've got the what they call the force.com IDE, so the, the Eclipse plugin. Um, and again, this is where if, if this was a good tool, I mean, it potentially could support, um, you know, like some kind of refactoring capabilities. You know, they, they released, I don't, I don't know when the initial release of this thing was, excuse me, six years ago. I don't think there's, has there been any substantial improvement? Have you seen any substantial improvement in it whatsoever? To the IDE itself? Yeah. No, I can't say that I have. I, I think I think it's improved in certain areas in terms of. I, yeah, I don't know that it has improved. I mean, that's the that's the thing. It looks almost identical. I mean, it can't even it can't even syntax highlight still six years later. Right. Well, we 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 do know that they're working on it. We do know that they're they're trying to put some some new focus into it. But that uh, kind of oh, uh, hang on, hang on. Do we know that, they're working on it? Because the story I'm getting is that they are um, they're they're actually going to sunset this thing. Because they've nope. got a new tooling API. Nope. Okay. Nope. There, there was a recent blog post um, from them admitting that they've kind of have not spent much, very much attention on the IDE and that they are going to release a new IDE that's going to be based on the tool tooling API. It will have better syntax um, code complete and all those kind of things. Um, and that it will start supporting the latest versions of Eclipse, which has also been an issue because they've kind of been stuck on version 3.6 and they haven't they haven't pushed it to to support the later releases of eclipse yeah what is it i mean that's like a what a four-year-old version of eclipse right yeah not only that their standalone ide that had some kind of pulse plug-in which was just it was just horrible it it is horrible i wouldn't install the force.com official ide branded eclipse version Um, i would stick to the plugin download eclipse and add the plugin the the other one kind of does some weird things with the networking and how it accesses it in order to do these updates and it just it's broken my system a few times and I had to go in and modify a bunch of things to get it get it back to normal. Yeah, so I think I mean if we're if we are supposed to take this seriously, then then they need to either fix the Eclipse ID or kill it. Um, and and so the the alternative to the Eclipse ID is the developer console, mm-hmm. right? And you know, this has been around in some form for several years now. It started out as like the system log, right? I think that's what it was originally called. Right. <clears throat> um, and and it is now, you know, purported to be the, you know, the new, the, the IDE in the cloud. This is the way that they, that they are envisioning us writing Salesforce code, you know, developing Salesforce applications. Um, unfortunately, it's not anywhere near close Half the time it doesn't work, you know, the weird error messages, the you know, keyboard, well, I think key I, bindings. I mean, it's just, yeah. it's, it's a mess. It's definitely a worthy goal. I I think it's a worthy goal to move IDEs onto the web um, as a web application, especially for a platform that's entirely web-based. But that area has a lot of growing pains in getting the technology to catch up to be able to actually facilitate it. We had we had Mozilla's Best Bin, which is gone now, which was basically an entire IDE built into the Canvas um, HTML5 canvas, basically it drew text rather than actually have HTML elements. 
Um, we have the Cloud9 IDE, which was supposed to have a, which was got a early release of the tooling API before it actually got publicly released. I haven't seen anything from them that uses it. Um, we have a brain engine company that, that develops an IDE, um, but it's kind of quirky and buggy and, and I haven't actually used it, but I have colleagues who have, who have given it a thorough shot and have found it to be good, but not good enough for daily use. So we're left with tools like the Eclipse IDE. Maven's Mate is actually pretty good. I enjoy using that as an IDE, um, which is a plugin for Sublime. And it's getting better, um, but there's still a lot of quirks. It still doesn't support everything that, that it needs. So I'm, I'm always kind of bouncing back and forth between Eclipse, um, Sublime, and even Salesforce. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, for developers, we're, we're actually working in three different IDEs, three different environments. It's, it's just kind of kills productivity a little bit. Yeah. It, so I think, uh, you know, to, to put a bow on this, it, that the whole tooling store needs, needs a lot of work. Um, and I know they're working on it, but they've been working on it and I don't have a great feeling that, um, that's going to get significantly better anytime soon. I think they're working on it because I think it's, it's an issue that's becoming, more and more apparent, um, especially as they try to go after more ISVs and get more people to build onto the platform. I think previously their focus was you don't need you don't need a developer to do stuff on Salesforce. It's point and click, and that I think that's what they've been focusing on lately. And for for the developers, they've kind of they haven't really done much for us. Yeah, in fact, some of the conversations I've, I've had with some upper level executives at Salesforce in the in the platform area have indicated that really their priorities are driven by more of the point and click aspects than the developer aspects. Right. And, and they're both important and, and maybe the point and click stuff is more important. You know, I don't know. I mean, obviously I'm, I'm kind of biased, but there's, there's still, regardless, there's, there's still aspects that desperately need to be addressed if they're, if they're going to be the enterprise platform. All right. So that's tools, right? I mean, it is what it is. Um, Speaking of Maven's mate, they just pushed an update. He told me that. No, they pushed another one. Oh, really? I think it's all that one dude, isn't it? Um, I don't know his name. Can't remember now. Anyway, um, so I, I think another aspect that's got to improve is that the team development aspect. If Salesforce wants to be an enterprise platform for development, I mean, the story on a team development's got to improve where you've got multiple developers. Um, right. It's just, it's not great right now. So, you know, there's the, not, it's not it, great, meaning very painful. It's um, painful. I mean, and there's endless debate and, and, you know, people try different things and on, on, in terms of what strategy is better, you know, same org, you know, multiple orgs, but sharing a, a code repository. I, I've got my opinions, but there's really no great way. And that's got to, that's got to get better. And, and I also think that ties up another one of my notes is the the deployment issue. So deployment tools need to get better. Well, I, I mean, I think we should talk about team team development for a little bit. I mean, it, it is a very painful topic. I mean, if you if you take the approach of giving every developer their own environment, then you still have to keep all that in sync. And the tools for keeping that all in sync are just non-existent. You basically have to go into whatever your main org is and deploy out to all those other orgs to keep them in sync so that as they're deploying and creating new systems, a new code, they're contributing to the same code base. To avoid all that work, we end up doing single development work. 
Yeah, I, you know, and in, in, in the non-Salesforce world, you'd have, I mean, every developer would have be running their own instance locally, right? And right. the way you make, you know, like things like, of course, code changes are, that's the, that's the, the short part. I mean, that's the easy part. That's, you know, you make some code changes, you commit to the, your Git repository, you guys all push to the same repository. That's a well-known thing. That's, that's easy. You know, things for like database schema changes, you know, typically you'll have in your source repository, you'll have like a list of um, SQL migrations. And when you need a schema change, someone writes a migration and it's written in, in like, you know, whatever the database language, you know, SQL language. And that gets pushed in the repository as well. So when someone make, needs to make a SQL change, again, eventually all the developers pull it down. It They run it. It changes their local database. They're running their own copy of the application. Well, in the Salesforce world, first of all, you can't run, you're not running anything locally. You can't run locally. So again, if you're on an airplane or anywhere else, forget it. You know, you're not going to be doing any work, not any real work because um, you can't run anything locally. It's, it's truly only in the cloud. But I think more importantly... Do they really let us developers travel that much? <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm not complaining about that. But it's the deployment tools. It's it's things like the schema changes. Not only is the, is the language like weird and awkward, and in some cases just downright difficult to work with. It's that. Well, I think I think. As developers that, or you and I are developers and we come from different worlds. It's not primarily a Salesforce world. And so the frustration comes from that all these problems have kind of been solved, or we at least have an idea of how we want to solve it. The problem is that we just can't port that over into the Salesforce world. So we're, at, we're actually having to kind of come up with all these really new ways of trying to deal with it. And none of them have been really effective. In fact, Anytime I've gone to Dreamforce and had a chance to talk to product managers or been in, in sessions where a product, man, product manager has been there talking about the develop, the Salesforce platform itself from a development perspective, everyone has kind of raised their hand and talked about, well, what are you doing about version control? What are you doing about team development? What are you doing about all these things that really kind of impact us um, at the enterprise level where we have multiple developers working on a product? And, and they, they, there really isn't a good answer um, for that from them. And I think it goes back to the way the language is working, the way the language or the way the environments have been structured to work, that they've kind of almost backed themselves into a corner that's not easy to solve. Yeah. Um, I mean, the way it's, it's difficult to just do it. I mean, you need to be able to easily create and deploy to and then tear down instances quickly and easily. And they just don't have that. I mean, it's, I th- Think in order. It's a long, drawn-out copy yeah. process from the original to the new. You don't even get data along with it, so you're having to reproduce all this data. Although recently they did come out with their Developer Pro, which is the former conf- configuration-only sandbox, um, is what it used to be. But now it'll actually copy certain pieces of information um, through a template. You basically say, when I create this new org or refresh this new org, copy over these custom settings or copy over these standard objects, but you don't get custom objects to get to copy over. And the the limit is still there in terms of how much data you can have in those environments. So when we're talking about being able to develop something and truly test it before we get it into these other higher level environments, it just doesn't exist. Yeah. And if it does exist, it comes at a, a tremendous price because you get a sandbox, but that sandbox is still based cost wise on how many users you have. And you know what? I mean, I'm not even considering the cost aspects, although that's obviously a, a, an issue you have to deal with um, because I've, worked with Salesforce customers before that in order to get a full sandbox, you know, cost 
upwards of $100,000 for a single full sandbox because it's based on number of licenses you have or whatever. It's something very arbitrary. Yeah. But, but that aside, the cost aside, I mean, just the, the underlying tools and technology are not there and they've got to fix that. And I, and I know they're working on it. Um, I don't know any of the details. I've just, I've heard from, again, from kind of the horse's mouth that they are working on that, but I don't know where they are, what their plans are. Um, but it's, it's certainly not there right now. Right. Um, so we talked about the deployment tools, you know, they're, you know, one of the big things is the big things for me is, you know, there needs to be again, easy, easy spinning up and tearing down and item potent deployments. Is it, is it item potent or it, it, I, I don't I'm, know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think I always equate it to impotence whenever I hear that word. I say item potent. <laughs> you want to define that for people who may not know it? In it's, it's a mathematical it. property. It just, it means you can apply the same operation to something over and over and it doesn't, you can, you can apply the same operation over and over without it changing. Right. So I should be able to just deploy, deploy, deploy. But anyway, it's not there because the way that their metadata API works, really, it's not idempotent. It's more of an incremental thing. Um, you, you can take a little piece of something and deploy it to an instance. So yeah, they just the, their whole mod, that whole met the the model of their metadata API is just not where it needs to be. It just doesn't support again, kind of an, a larger scale enterprise development um, type of thing. Yeah, and I think that I think that the tooling API is probably their answer to that because I think yeah, it's not. Well, I've, so I'll I've, tell you. I'll tell you my story. When I when I heard about the tooling API, I was encouraged because it, it, to me it meant hey, they're they're getting back into focusing on developer tools. They're they're finally focusing on some of the pain points that we've been kind of asking about and saying hey, we need a pro- we need this solved because we just can't get things done. Um, but I was kind of really disappointed, and so in my mind, I kind of rationalized that okay, as well. This is just their way of resetting and saying, okay, well, we're going to, we're going to fix it with this and then we're going to start adding on to it. But I've seen very little progress since then. I mean, granted, it's only been about a year, but they've kind of conditioned us with these three releases a year that we're going to start seeing some progress. And I really haven't. I mean, I've, I've looked at the tooling API. There's not much, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't fix or enable any of these things we're talking about. Right. But I was hoping it would lay the foundation and I would see some of that progress. Yeah. And, and that's where my disappointment comes from. Yep. No, I, I, I feel you. Um, okay. So the next thing is like a, a, and I think you hit on this earlier, but a legitimately like a true bug tracker and, and total transparency around bugs. Um, right. Th- this becomes really important. I think for, I see it more with ISVs. I've got, I've, I've helped a lot of ISVs. I've got, I know people who work for some of these bigger ISVs and this is one of their big issues. And, and I've, you know, you've worked for, um, large company. Um, with a probably pretty good sized lines of code or, you know, whatever size of application you guys have, de- you, you deployed to Salesforce. And, you know, when, and, and I'll tell you when, I think it was, I guess a, I'm trying to think of what it was called. Summer 13, I think is what they call the release. That was probably one of the buggiest releases I've ever seen. All kinds of just edge case platform bugs. Although and, I'm betting that this one, this winter 14 is, is, is pretty buggy. You know, I don't know. Um, I hope not. But but anyway, if if you don't know the right people at Salesforce behind the scenes, you're kind of in the dark. Right. 
you, there's there's no there's nowhere you can get. I mean, speaking of trust.salesforce.com, and that and the irony in that you can't trust it. You can't trust their what what do they call their public bug tracker? I don't even know what it's called because I don't go to it because it's it's completely useless. It's not. It is a curated cold list. It's it seems to be run by the marketing department almost. It's it's so fake. Well, the fact that there's curation there. Well, <clears throat> no, I guess that's not fair to absolutely say. Absolutely, yes. Well, it, that's not really fair to say. I mean, curation is actually pretty important when you're talking about bugs. I mean, you obviously don't want to put out there that, hey, there's this bug, and someone take take advantage of that and expose it as a security issue for the for the well, platform itself. Okay, so this is a problem. I mean, because we're a lot of us are having to deal with these bugs. Like we find them, and we want to know what the story is. Is this really a bug, or am I doing something wrong? And there's probably I, there's probably fifty other developers that have come across the same bug in the past three days, right? But I I don't know who they are. I can't communicate with them because there's no open bug tracker. There's no transparency with this, right? Well, I think that comes to when it comes to curation, it can be for a couple of different reasons. You know, obviously you want to curate and and prevent bugs being listed that could compromise the the security of the system. But I think what comes along with that is that hey this bug is only affecting a few people and it doesn't really tell a good story. Let's just not publish it. There's really no need to. And I think that's where you kind of start blurring the line and crossing the line of, of trying to control the message versus kind of do what's responsible for, for your users who are actually having these issues and trying to figure out, is it a bug in the platform or is it my code? And I've just spent three hours of, of my time that I either can bill and the customer's paying or I can't bill and I'm paying to try and figure this out. Yeah. And, and so what, you know, the story that Salesforce would give you what when you when you think you found a bug is, is to log a case, right? Deal with support. Oh, that's painful. I'll, I mean, I've got I've got a customer right now who has for I, I'm it's got to be at least four months. Um, they have not been able to s save a Visual Force page or, com you know, compile a Visual Force page or Apex class in, in five months, four or five months. Um, it takes, it takes about, well, they, you can, but it takes about three, it takes about three minutes to do anything and they can't deploy it all because it just, it, everything times out and they don't know why it got escalated to R and D supposedly, right? Cause for, so first of all, you know, levels like one through three of Salesforce support are outsourced to some country, some other company, you know, we don't know who they are or where they are, but they're certainly not here and they certainly don't work for Salesforce and they're certainly not trained well. They don't know what they're doing. Their, their job is to look up the closest thing in their knowledge base and send you articles to tell you what you're doing wrong. Um, right. And, and I, we actually negotiated at one point for me to get past those people so I can get to at least level three. Yeah. So this is, I mean, if you're running your business on this, whether you're an ISV or a small company, a large company, it doesn't really matter. I mean, this is not acceptable. This is not a platform that you can trust. Again, back to the, you know, the aspect of trust with Salesforce. You just can't trust it. Um, you can't depend on it. And you can't depend on getting an honest answer or having an honest conversation about um, a potential problem with the platform. And this is, and again, in, in total contrast to other platforms that are out there. So they need to, they need to address this. This has got to be, this has got to be addressed. I mean, how could you, so does Amazon disclose every, every instance of the issue of the issues that they experience? I mean, I just, I'm not, I'm not so sure that the, well, so, so Amazon being, is, you know, I'm not, I'm not so sure that, that kind of dinging them on the whole trust word, even though, yeah, it's a big marketing buzzword. You can trust us to do this and that. I mean, I think their uptime is relatively good. I think there are a lot of aspects of the platform security wise that they've done a really good job at. And the, the trust portion applies to that because obviously they've done well at that 
enough that we can trust them to control that data. They haven't had any security breaches, those kind of things. I think what we're talking about is, is an issue of trust of, am I really having a bug? Can I trust you guys to support me when I develop something on this platform? I think those are two sides of the coin versus, you know, they've, they've been able to, to manage the platform, keep that secure, and you can trust them on that. It's just, can we trust the messaging around what we can develop realistically, what we can do? And if we have a problem, are you guys really going to be able to help us? Yeah, I'm, I'm talking about show-stopping bugs in some cases. Um, and, and the answer is no. You cannot trust the answer you get back from them. You cannot trust when level one, two, and three support tell you uh, that you're doing something wrong. Um, that, that is an issue when, to when, me. When I they mean, don't, then when they obviously have no clue what they're talking about. These, the, these default, are, the default is that you must have done something wrong. The default for a customer is if a third-party implementation partner built that for you, go to them because we have nothing to do with that. Yeah. Uh, okay. So I got another thing that I just, that I think everyone has run into, but I just thought of it the other day, which is that you've got incredibly limited compute power on the platform. Meaning if you've got some job that, t- that takes some intensity to run, let's say you've, um, uh, you're, you're, you've got thousands of trucks that you need to schedule for jobs and you need to run through this list of trucks and, and code and, and, schedule them out to different jobs based on different aspects and where they are and different properties of the trucks and everything. And let's say that, you know, that involves a number of queries and CPU time and different things. Um, good luck doing that on force.com because they want everything to fit into a very short lived, quick and efficient transaction that takes, you know, a matter of a couple of seconds. And, uh, if you, if you have any batch job and, and I don't mean batch in terms of a lot of records. I'm talking about something that's got to be loaded into membrane, processed. Then right. force.com is not is not your answer. And and these are totally legitimate, very common enterprise type issues. Yeah, when it comes to to business rules, business logic, analytics, um, those kind of things where you're typically having to take a large subset of data, analyze it, which means looping through it multiple times and collecting information on that. Uh, that's where it becomes really difficult to do natively, you mm-hmm. know, on the platform using Apex code. That's where we typically have to recommend to our customers that, hey, I may need to write an application external to be able to do this. And that means exporting all your information. That means giving me a server with enough memory to, to be able to put that into memory and manipulate it. Um, so now we're back into the realm of maintaining software and services and, and servers and all those kind of things. And, and you know, when I think back to their marketing, you know, the customer was sold on being able to build anything, do it in the cloud, you know, get your reports, do your analytics, see all these great dashboards you can have. But when a customer has something a little more complex than simple add some average type functionality, uh, it starts to get a little difficult. It, yeah, it's hard to reconcile that with if you can dream it, you can build it. And, and in many cases, hey, I'd be willing to pay for whatever compute power I'm using. Fine. Right. Build me just like everyone else would build me. But no, it's just, it's just not an option. You can't get billed for it. You can't do it. So anyway, that's, I mean, you know, I know they have to protect their platform and the perform, the performance of the platform, but there should be escape hatches for when you need to, need to do the things. And if not, then change your message because it, you know, you can't build it if you can dream it. And that's the reality. Um, so another thing is, uh, you know, some things are just incredibly slow. Things can take uh, 30 seconds to save or compile small things. Right. Um, you know, every time you, de- anytime you deploy something and I know it, you know, it's got to run a bunch of tests, but 
Um, some of these things are just, are just incredibly slow. I mean, for the amount of code I've got, I mean, I may, maybe have a, you know, a few hundred, couple, maybe a couple thousand lines of code and these things will take several minutes to deploy to, or to run tests on to even get any kind of answer back. And, you know, if it doesn't deploy right, then you've got to, or if tests don't pass, then you've got to address that and try again. And I mean, you're spending most of your time waiting right? in a day. I mean, this, this has got to be fixed. I mean, I don't know what's going on because you know, their runtime platform is very efficient. I mean, in general, uh, you know, there's been times in the past where visual force, I particularly was known as a fairly slow system. Um, you probably didn't want to run your public website if it had any traffic or if traffic or if speed was important, probably didn't want to run it on sites. A lot of that's gotten better. And uh, I think in, in general, the software platform itself, the runtime platform is good, but all of the things around the developer aspect, you know, compiling and deploying and testing, those are all just still really slow. I don't know what's going on with that, but it really affects developer productivity when you can you think of how much of your of your day is spent wait uh, spent waiting. Right, it's significant. And again, compared to any other platforms I work on, it's it's an order of magnitude. And they've yeah, I mean, it's, it's to the point that I kind of factor some of that stuff in when I know I'm, I need to do a deployment or I know I need to do something simple that may take me an hour, I'll, I'll have to pad it. I'll have to say maybe it's it's an hour or two hours. It just depends because I have to, I have to wait for this to compile. I have to wait for this to run and run all the, all the other stuff that happens in the platform, all the other tests to get run. And so, so we've kind of built that into our process so that we're not taking that hit. Um, but at the same time, it's one of those hits that should we really be having to make? Should we really have to modify our estimates to account for the slowness of the pa- the platform? I mean, it's, it's basically just passing on the cost to our customers. Yeah, I guess the point where I, I, you know, I've got to be honest. I mean, hey, I can, I can build this in Ruby or Grails or something way faster than I can build it in, for, in Visual Force. I mean, if it's something significant, you know, what would you rather me do at this point? You know, and well, the 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 significant stuff may not be so much of an issue, but it's some of these quick things. It's <clears throat> I've built a, a trigger for someone, and I, and now they need something changed in the logic, and I go in and change it. Well, it's it's not fifteen minutes. It's an hour, it's two hours, it's maybe even three hours for me to, to run that, get the testing updated, run the testing, deploy it, which could take, you know, a few minutes or so, depending on how much code they have in there, how many tests they have. And, and then on top of that, because of the, the way the platform can be changed over time, I may have to deal with new validation rules or new other things that have broken other tests. And now I have to go through and modify all of those um, in order to get this one little thing implemented into production. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, there's just a handful of other things that seem small, but are big, um, things like, you know, their, their whole, like in apex in the apex world, like the soap stack, the whole web services stack. I mean, the fact that, you know, if you want to, if you want to use connect to another soap service, um, it, the, the support is so limited and, and broken. I mean, you know, we've all run into this issue where if they only support us a very, a a subset, right. Of wisdom and soap. And, and whatever else it may be that there's just a, there's a lot of web services that you're just not going to be able to consume. You just can't participate on the open web anymore. Right. right. You can't do it now. Now you're back to, okay. And we have to put up a server or we have to get an Amazon instance up or something to consume this web service because you're not going to do it from, from apex. Um, and there's things like, you know, there's Sam, I'm, I'm a little bit behind, but so the, some of this may have changed, but streaming, you know, what if you need to parse, a 100 megabyte CSV file. And for each line in the CSV, you need to create a record in Salesforce. There's 
to my knowledge, unless they've changed this, there's no streaming. So you basically are looking at loading the entire CSV file into memory and then uh, splitting it somehow. And of course, there are there's the Salesforce doesn't give you the memory, nor nor should they really to to do that. It really, should there should be some kind of streaming API, whether you're whether it's for CSV files or just general text files or or processing XML that doesn't exist. And that's just a, you know, just a, a small, uh, I want to actually, it's a huge example, but one of just so many examples of, of areas where they're just, there's just nothing there. You, yeah, you just part, can't, you can't solve these kinds of problems on force.com. Yeah. Parsing is a really good example. Um, because I, I've had clients who wanted some kind of integration with an external system that did provide some kind of web service. However, that web service basically stuck all of its content in the body of the message as XML. And my first attempt at solving that problem was to parse the XML, loading to Salesforce, and everyone's happy. We don't have any kind of middleware or anything like that that has to exist. However, because of all the limitations of the system, script limits, which has recently changed, um, I'm not sure it would have, would have solved this problem given that XML could grow and shrink and who knows how long it's going to take to process that. We, we basically had to go back to them and say, hey, we're not going to be able to do this native on the platform. We're going to have to have you acquire a server, allow us to write some custom code that was going to be able to communicate with this service, do all the parsing, and then send that into Salesforce. So what would you bring to drink? Well, it's pretty much gone now, but this is a... Um, I'm out of my first best whiskey and my second best whiskey, and so I'm now down to... Uh, what is this? Jim Beam. And so... I and that's may- funny. That's funny because I have to, I have to talk about Jim Bean because I've always called it for years Bean as in B E A N, and I just found out tonight from you that it's actually Beam with an M. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So this is Jim Beam and some Angostura bitters. I just shot in there on the rocks with some soda, and I think that oh I don't even know, but that's uh. That's a drink. Oh, an old fashioned, right? If I just had a little bit of sugar in there, that'd be an old fashioned. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. So it was pretty good. Well, I'm always a whiskey and Coke kind of guy. Although I, I do on the occasion, we'll drink it straight on the rocks um, for tasting purposes. But lately it's been pretty much just any whiskey, any Coke. But tonight, hope- tonight is special because it's our first podcast. When I, when I left my previous company, I don't want to say the name, but. When I left my previous company, uh, one of my coworkers as a going away gift knew that I really liked whiskey and she was really into whiskey. Her and her husband actually went on a tour of Kentucky to all of the Kentucky bourbon factories, at least all the major ones. And so she got me this, one of her favorites was a Woodford Woodford Reserve and it's a single cask um, production, um, obviously one of their. So this is a good whiskey? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a good. Please, please don't tell me you're mixing that with Coke. Yes, I know it's blasphemy, but I am. <laughs> <laughs> That's what the cheap whiskey's for, man. I, and I agree. I have my my Jack. I, I buy the the gigantic bottle that you see that almost seems like a novelty of Jack. Um, the bottle <laughs> the that I'm embarrassed. Five gallon. <laughs> the the bottle that I hide in the back cabinet because I'm embarrassed if anyone saw it they would think I was just some gigantic drunk. But really, it's just my everyday whiskey that I'll mix in with Coke. You're gonna but have tonight. A- you're gonna have the ATF breaking your door down for illegal quantities <laughs> of whiskey. No, no, it's just those that that have some reservations about drinking that 
that don't realize that I'm just a social drinker and I enjoy my whiskey. Um, yeah. Yeah. Keep, keep telling yourself that. No. <laughs> so that's what I usually have in my decanter, but, um, is it a decanter? What is it called? Anyways. I guess. Yeah. I don't know what you like a, the, but the, the, the glass bottle that you keep whiskey in. Yeah. Is that yeah. a decanter? I guess it is. I don't know. I guess it, it's basically decorative, my, decorative my, my decorative show whiskey bottle <laughs> is where I stick that. So I don't have a big <laughs> bottle of Jack sitting in my, in so my, you, uh, you actually office. use that, that fancy looking, you know, uh, J.R. Ewing whiskey or a uh, Mad Men, whatever whiskey <laughs> bottle. <laughs> I don't know if it's that fancy, but it just had the kind of the glass stopper and those kind of things. And, um, I keep it nice and clean, but anyways, I decided I'd pop that open for, for the podcast. And since I didn't want to be plastered for our podcast, I decided to mix it with some Coke. Um, but I did give it a taste and it's actually really good. And uh, I'll, I'll definitely, uh, remedy that situation and give it the tasting that it deserves. Awesome. Well, like I said, we've got a lot of more topics, but uh, I think we ran out of time. So yep. it's been fun. I think this is a good first podcast. Obviously we're, we're amateurs and uh, we have no idea what we're doing, but um, hopefully one or two people, I'm sure we can convince someone to listen to this. <laughs> Maybe one or two. Mom, mom will always yeah, listen I, to yeah, everything. Exactly. I know my mom will. And yeah. I mean, I might have to buy her lunch or something, but she'll listen to it. <laughs> she'll so. come back and say, I didn't understand anything you guys were talking about. Yeah, no, that's fine. She'll be happy <laughs> hearing the sound of my voice. Yeah. All right, John, until next All time. Right. I guess that's a good day, sir. Good day, sir.